Welcome back, listeners, to Talking PFAS podcast. This is season three. If you missed the last episode of Talking PFAS, I encourage you to have a listen. It was an interview with Dr. Paul Birch, who is the science director from Land and Water CSIRO in Brisbane. Well, it's a it's a significant global challenge for, for the reasons we've talked about. I mean, PFAS has unique properties. It's been ubiquitously distributed throughout the environment. So obviously firefighting foams is just one uh, component. And one of the reasons it ends up so ubiquitous in the biosolids that we talked about earlier is because it's leaching from a whole host of products, fabrics. And, and as I mentioned, those unique properties mean it's... Some people call it the forever, as you know, contaminant or forever chemical. Today's episode is an interview with Professor Ian Cousins from the Department of Environmental Science in Stockholm University in Sweden. We're going to be talking about his paper called The Concept of Essential Use for Determining When Uses of PFASs Can Be Phased Out. I've been studying PFAS for over 20 years. I started working on PFAS in early 2000, just actually just before 3M announced their phase out of PFOS and other chemistries. PFOS are widely used in society. I don't think the average person has a clue how widely. We recently identified more than 200 different uses and were frankly surprised by many of these uses. And many of these uses appear to be non-essential and can be phased out rapidly. An essential use is where the technical function in a use is essential for health and safety um, and cannot be replaced by another chemistry or technology. So thank you for your time today, Ian. Could you start by telling the listeners, just introduce yourself and where you are from? Yeah, um, my name is Ian Cousins. Originally, I'm from the UK. I grew up in the south of England um, and I studied chemistry and then I specialised in environmental chemistry and did a PhD in, in the UK. And then I did postdoctoral work in Canada. That's where I first became interested in this class of substances known as PFAS about 20 years ago. Then I moved to Sweden in early 2000s and became an academic at Stockholm University and have actually been promoted. So now I'm a professor in the Department of Environmental Science at Stockholm University and I'm well known for my research on PFAS. Thank you. That was um, a nice, concise history. I was going to say, when did you first learn about the PFAS chemicals yourself? Was that 20 years ago, you said? Yeah, it's quite interesting because what I was working for back then, Donald Mackay, who's quite well known in the field of environmental chemistry, he got contacted by 3M, and so did a lot of uh, big scientists at that time with an offer of quite a lot of funding to investigate these new class of substances, PFAS, and needed help to try and understand them. And because uh, I was working for Don Mackay, he said to me, Ian, I want you to be the man who does the work. So, you know, you have to help 3M try and understand these substances. So I actually went to, um, you know, St. Paul, where 3M's headquarters is, and I, I was given lectures by 3M on PFAS. That's really when I first got into the subject. I was fascinated. It was completely new for me. And it really changed my whole sort of perception of uh, environmental chemistry. It's a quite different class of substances with different behavior. And I learned a lot in a very short time. That's when I first got into it. And then when I came to Sweden, I was determined to carry on working on these substances. But it took quite a long time for me to get funding because actually in the early 2000s, there weren't many people working on PFAS or interested in PFAS. Yeah, so that was the early 2000s, exactly. That was the first, I guess, warning bells, wasn't it, in the world that this class of chemicals were going to prove to be quite challenging. That was the first warning about that, wasn't it? Well, it was around that time, yeah. I mean, there were one or two scientists who had sort of investigated a little bit earlier, but there were very few. You could start to see that the literature basically just expanded around, you know, the early 2000s, it just suddenly took off. But the community was quite small and it grew slowly from the early 2000s, the scientific community working on PFAS. So actually, when I came to Sweden, people were sort of asking, why do you want to work on those substances? What's so interesting with them? Even that was like 2002, 2003. They were still fairly unknown in the field. Yeah. How would you describe it now? Like in comparison, what is the field like now when it comes to PFAS? Well, it, it really exploded when the, you know, the, the water contamination age left because I was starting to see the field plateau off a bit. I was thinking, you know, maybe I should find the next thing to work on. But when these water contamination issues came up, 
from about 2011, 2012 onwards, the field has really taken off and it's now bigger than ever, I'd say. And there's a huge interest. I would agree. It's certainly picked up a lot of momentum, even accelerated in the last two or three years since I've been doing the podcast. I've noticed a huge difference. Yeah, I agree. Last year, we organized this big conference in the US, a big international conference, you know, and for me, who's been working on it a long time, it's quite surprising to suddenly see this huge interest. And I think, why now? You know, we've been talking about these substances for two decades, and all of a sudden, everyone's interested in them. It seems a bit kind of late. Perhaps it's because there's been a lot of uh, focus on, you know, lawsuits and people are worried about being sued. Yeah, I agree. There's been quite a lot of a lot of lawsuits going on. I mean, there's one in Sweden now, even here. You know, we have private citizens who are suing um, the water provider. Right. So you have studied this group of chemicals, PFAS chemicals, for 20 years. Would that be right? Yeah, that's correct. Is that the only group of chemicals that you spend the majority of your time on? These days, I spend the majority of my time on these substances. You know, the first 10 years of my career, I didn't know anything about them really because I was working on some of these old sort of classic pollutants like PCBs and PAHs and dioxins that we studied a lot in the 80s and 90s. But this class of substances is, you know, so much interest now. It's quite possible to just specialize on working on these substances. So, yeah, in the last few years, I have mostly worked on these substances. I am still doing other things in the contaminants field, but they've taken over. Yeah, interesting. So are you concerned about this group of chemicals? Yeah, I am concerned. They they are a very diverse class of substances because the definition of PFAS is very broad. So you end up capturing a lot of substances, thousands of substances, and they are very diverse in their behavior. And most people know about PFOS and PFOA and the hexane sulfonate. These are the famous ones studied in Australia, but there are thousands of other substances and most people don't know about these. And they are diverse and they they have all sorts of behaviour. Some of them are toxic and some of them, frankly, are not toxic. Some of them will accumulate in your body and some will not, but all of them are persistent. They're either stable themselves or they break down into substances which are stable in the environment and they're really stable. They redefine, you know, environmental stability kind of because we don't really know if they will break down at all because they degrade so slowly. So you know, they, they'll be in an environment for, we don't know how long, you know, centuries. And that is a big concern in itself because if you release something into the environment which shouldn't be there, which is you know, made by us, mankind or you know they're synthetic and they're released into the environment they shouldn't be there and they don't degrade and they will accumulate they will continually accumulate and eventually they'll reach a, a level where they will cause an effect what which we might know about or it could be an unknown effect and then when we do discover that there's not much we can do to actually take the contamination out of the environment again it's there you know for good can't reverse it so that i think is is my concern about the class. It's not really sustainable to use these kind of substances. So we have to really think about alternatives. Uh, This is kind of well known in the field of green chemistry, where you try to design chemical that does degrade and it enters the environment. No, we shouldn't be using these substances, in my opinion. When they're not essential, of course, and there are some cases where we may have to use them, and that's a little bit about, you know, the paper. Yes, we'll come to that paper. Just before we get on there, when you think about the ozone layer depleting chemicals, they were the CFCs? Yeah, they were phased out um, in the 1970s when they first discovered the problem. But the guy who first discovered the substance in the atmosphere is still alive. He's like over 100, James Lovelock. And he first discovered them. But the big mistake he made was he said that they have no conceivable hazard but he didn't think about the ozone layer. He was just thinking about toxic hazards. And they're not toxic, but they are extremely persistent. And then they cause an unknown effect. At that time, it was unknown, which was depleting the ozone layer. And that's the concern with these very persistent chemicals, that they're hanging around for a long, long time, and they could cause an effect that we don't know about. Well, people are very familiar with the ozone-depleting chemicals. Um, The thing that I wanted to say about that is, though, we just stopped using them, right? But nobody had to go and clean them up. Am I right about that? There was no clean-up required, whereas PFAS will require a clean-up. Yeah, with the CFCs, I mean, you just have to wait. You just have to kind of turn off the tap, the emissions, and just wait for decades for them to disappear from the atmosphere. 
Exactly. But you don't have to go and clean them up. Whereas PFAS, if there is a cause and effect discovered, and there seems to be some of those cause and effects out there, we have to go and clean up PFAS. We can't just leave it in the soil and the groundwater, can we? I don't think so. I mean, you know, with other substances, people do that in the end. They just decide to leave them because they do a cost-benefit analysis and decide it's just going to cost me so much money to clean up this. Then in the case of PFAS, the consequences of not cleaning it up are pretty harsh. So you have to do something about it. Okay. You and your colleagues released a critical review paper in 2019 titled The Concept of Essential Use for Determining When Uses of PFASs Can Be Phased Out. So can you tell me what motivated you and your colleagues to write that paper? Well, like we discussed earlier, we are concerned about this class of substances. And and back in 2015, a bunch of international scientists got together and wrote something called the Madrid Statement, which we published in the literature. Based on concerns regarding the high persistence of PFASs and the lack of knowledge on chemical structures, properties, uses and toxicological profiles of most PFASs currently in use, it's been argued by more than 200 scientists in the Madrid Statement that the production and use of PFASs should be limited. The Madrid Statement argues for stopping their use where they are deemed not essential or when safer alternatives exist. And it was basically a statement saying that really these PFAS are problematic classes of chemicals which we should not use in society and we should try and phase them out. There was a statement in there which said we should phase out the non-essential uses of PFAS without really defining what that is. So then we thought, well, we have to really do something about this. We have to define what are the non-essential and essential uses of PFAS. So we, um, we wrote this paper where where we tried to define this, and we were inspired by the Montreal Protocol, where they have this definition of essentiality for phasing out the substances which deplete the ozone layer. Can you explain the Montreal Protocol for people that have not heard of that before? Yeah, well, it was a it was a pro- international agreement to phase out the substances which deplete the ozone layer, so things like CFCs, but other substances as well. The Montreal Protocol on Substances that Deplete the Ozone Layer is an international agreement made in 1987, which has achieved universal ratification. It was designed to stop the production and import of ozone-depleting substances and reduce their concentration in the atmosphere to help protect the Earth's ozone layer. It sits under the Vienna Convention for the Protection of the Ozone Layer, The Vienna Convention was adopted in 1985 and was drafted following international discussion of scientific discoveries in the 1970s and 1980s, highlighting the adverse effect of human activity of ozone levels in the stratosphere and the discovery of the ozone hole, which most of us would be familiar with. A UV index of 9 is considered high. Without the Montreal Protocol, a UV index of 25 could have been reached in Australia. In that, there are some exemptions where if a chemical is considered to be essential for health and safety or have another essential function in society, then it can be continued to be used, but you have to basically limit the emissions enormously and make sure that you basically don't emit them because you don't want to deplete the ozone layer. But it's, a, it's considered to be essential for society, so it's allowed to be continued to be used. So that was really where we got the idea from, for essentiality, from that international treaty, I would call it. Okay, so is that uh, the Montreal Protocol, is that a binding legislation or is it just a guide? I mean, if you sign up to these things, you're supposed to abide by them. Um, How binding it is, I don't know from legal terms. I'm not a legal expert. But now what the full consequences are, the other things like the Stockholm Convention is also one of the international agreements of phasing out things like PFOS, for example. The Stockholm Convention on Persistent Organic Pollutants is a global treaty to protect human health and the environment from persistent organic pollutants, commonly known as POPs. A fact sheet from the Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment gives some information on the Stockholm Convention and POPs and the listings of PFOS and PFOA. It reads, POPs are pesticide and industrial chemicals that are persistent in the environment bioaccumulate in organisms, are toxic to human health 
and the environment and are transported long distances. Exposure to POPs can lead to serious health effects, including certain cancers, birth defects, dysfunctional immune and reproductive systems, greater susceptibility to disease, and damages to the central and peripheral nervous systems. Chemicals listed under the convention are subject to elimination or restriction, as well as waste management requirements. Australia ratified the Stockholm Convention, in other words, agreed to be a party to it, in 2004. Australia does not automatically adopt controls for chemicals listed in the Stockholm Convention. Each chemical must be separately ratified by the Australian Parliament. PFOS was added to the Stockholm Convention in 2009 and PFOA was added to the Stockholm Convention in 2019. The Department of Environment Fact Sheet also says to ratify the listings of PFOS and PFOA under the Stockholm Convention, Australia must first be able to meet the associated management obligations. But then China is a signatory of the Stockholm Convention, but they actually carried on making PFOS. Enforcing these treaties can be tricky, but the idea is that when you sign it, you follow it. Interestingly, Australia was one of the first countries to ratify the Montreal Protocol. However, Australia is yet to ratify the listings of PFOS and PFOA under the Stockholm Convention. Okay, well, that's interesting. I didn't actually know that. I was interested to see that in the Montreal Protocol, it targeted 96 ozone-depleting chemicals in thousands of applications across more than 240 industrial sectors. So when you look at those numbers, that seems pretty comparative to what you are finding about the PFAS uses. Would that be correct? Yeah, but I would say that PFAS is even bigger because you have a much larger group of substances and probably more diverse uses. So I think it's an even bigger task Let's go to your paper now because we really want to get into this essential use paper. So first off, before we discuss it, what has the response been to the paper, the essential use paper? A lot of interest from around the world. Journalists have contacted me and written some nice articles. It really helped communicate the message better than we could actually in some cases. So I've spent a lot of time talking to journalists, but I've also been talking to a lot of scientists uh, been uh, conferences and other meetings. I'm still getting contacted. So in the next few months, I'm going to be talking at various meetings and conferences as well about this concept. At the moment, I kind of feel like I'm talking about it almost too much. I'd like to start talking about something else as well. But I mean, it's really nice to get such a huge response, of course, when you publish a paper. You mentioned before that the Madrid statement said, you know, we need to get rid of the non-essential uses of PFAS. So this paper seems to be filling a gap to take it to the next step. Would that be a a reasonable explanation of the paper? Yeah, I mean, there is already a framework for phasing out substances. There's this kind of growing field called chemical alternative assessment. And this is a kind of framework for substituting chemicals. I think the new thing that we emphasize is the non-essential uses. If there are non-essential uses, and I could think of a few for PFAS, we identified, for example, PFAS used in cosmetics, where, you know, obviously there's concern directly that you're putting something directly into your skin could be, you know, cause some direct exposure. Ian's paper states that PFASs have been found in a range of different cosmetics and personal care products including hair products, powders, sunblocks and skin creams. The paper says it's not clear whether any technical function provided by the PFASs is truly necessary and they're considered non-essential. Given the rapid phase-out by some retailers, it appears that drop-in alternatives are readily available. So that was one way we identified for rapid phase-out. A lot of companies, when this was flagged, actually immediately tried to change the formulation. So there were lots of retailers and brands which were then immediately tried to phase out their PFAS. Yeah, that was really interesting. The Body Shop and H&M and um, a few others. Yeah, and then there were other things like ski waxes, the fluorinated ski waxes. This has also been phased out by the International Ski Federation. That also went very quickly. So I think there are quite a lot of these for the non-essential uses where they're really not doing anything that's essential to society, health and safety, so they can be phased out very rapidly. I don't think the um, fluorinated ski waxes are completely finished though, are they? They're just being phased out of competition skiing. Isn't that the case? Yeah, that's correct. 
But I, I think that the end is nigh for them, to be honest, because a lot of the manufacturers of the waxes are really switching that, their focus to non-fluorinated waxes. I, I know that Swix, which is a Norwegian uh, ski wax manufacturer, is basically just deciding now to just move totally away from the fluorinated waxes. The thing is that the people who ski love the outdoors and they love the environment, so they really don't want to contaminate it. Yes, True. And also it was first highlighted that ski waxes were a problem because there was competition skiers who were testing very high levels of PFAS in their body. Is that correct? It was a ski wax technician. So there were people who just worked professionally all the time just waxing skis for professional skiers. That's their job. They take hundreds of pairs of skis and put different combinations of wax on them to try and work out which wax they put on the skis is fastest. Fluorinated waxes are favoured by competitive skiers because they are highly water repellent and result in better glide compared to the hydrocarbon-based waxes that most skiers use. A 2010 study by Helena Nilsson and others focused on cross-country skiing wax technicians' exposure to PFASs, called PFCs back then. The ski wax technicians were employed by the Swedish and US national cross-country ski teams. Fluorinated ski waxes are applied to the ski soles by using heat and during this process airborne particles and fumes containing a blend of gaseous organofluorine compounds are emitted. Inhalation of thermal degradation products from fluoropolymers could cause polymer fume fever which is informally called the Teflon flu. During the exposed skiing season from December to March, the technicians applied fluorinated ski wax for approximately 30 hours a week. Some of the technicians had PFOA levels almost as high as occupationally exposed workers at a 3M plant. So it was really just the uh, fact that these guys were like working all day in confined conditions where there was no ventilation and uh, they were inhaling the dust from the de-waxing and they had really high levels of PFOA in their blood. Board shorts is another one, or swimming shorts, you know. Isn't it to make them dry faster? Yeah, that's probably something more relevant to Australia. You know, the water repellent, certain shorts, yeah. Probably. What else did you find in your paper of some of these, you know, non-essential uses? What else did you find that is definitely non-essential? We talked about, like, dental floss. There were, there were a lot of different textiles, the easy care, clothing. People like to have clothing which... They don't have to iron, um, worry about so often. Uh, these are required for impregnating with fluorinated chemicals. Is it essential? This is also a societal question. And I think this is a bit of a tricky thing with the essential use concept. Do we really need these uses in society? You know, they make things easier for people, but do we really need them? And I think that's a tricky sort of philosophical question sometimes with some of these uses. So in your paper, you talk about two elements of essential use. The first one is the use is necessary for health, safety, or is critical for the functioning of society. And the second one is that there are no available technically and economically feasible alternatives. Do you want to talk about those two elements of essential use for a few moments? Yeah, I mean, health and safety, I think, is obvious. So an example would be protective clothing for medical workers where they have to be protected against you know, being exposed to viruses, maybe from patients, blood and so on. So they need to have high protection. I think that's also become really obvious with the pandemic. Our health workers need to be protected. But we need to talk about that PPE for a minute because really it is an essential use. Well, is there alternatives in the PPE? Have you discovered alternatives there are alternatives. We can get medical clothing, which you know, has an impermeable barrier, so it will protect you against viruses. The nice thing about the fluorinated technology is that it's breathable. So people working in a theatre in long operations, they also need to have comfort while they're working. They want to have a breathable and protective clothing. And uh, at the moment, I think it's only the fluorinated technology which really gives you both those things. So I think it is at the moment difficult to replace, but I don't think it's impossible. It's not an insurmountable challenge. I think in the future they probably will be able to come up with alternatives. It just depends if there's an incentive there to do that. But I think the PPE needs to be talked about for a minute because, like you said, that it does need to be breathable. When you think about the pandemic uses, it's not just people wearing them in theatre. Some health professionals are staying in their PPE gear where they never used to stay in their PPE gear. So that is a challenge. And then then you have all this discarded 
uh, PPE that's going to end up in landfills and transfer the PFAS back? Actually, in Sweden, at least, I can't speak for every country, but in Sweden, they incinerate after use. You know, it can be contaminated with viruses and other things. But incinerating, it's going to make the PFAS airborne, right? Well, it depends how you incinerate it. If you incinerate it at a high enough temperature, you destroy the PFAS. That is a bit of an uncertain thing that people are arguing about. A paper by Storber and others published in Chemosphere Journal in July this year, 2020, discussed the cyclical problem of PFAS disposal. The researchers state in their paper that a better understanding of the fate and transport of PFAS in the incineration process is urgently needed. They state both academic studies and government agency reports have raised concerns that PFAS incineration can release ozone-depleting chlorofluorocarbons, fluorinated greenhouse gases. They also mention a US EPA technical brief published in February 2020, which notes the fate and transport of PFAS during incineration are not yet well understood. A 2003 study by Ellis and others from Canada noted that incineration of fluoropolymers can release a plethora of unidentified and previously unreported materials that await characterisation. The evidence we have, at least, which is mostly industry studies, to be honest, suggests that when you heat it up to above 800, 900 degrees, it could be higher you destroy the PFAS when you incinerate. But it's something that people are working on to try and determine if that's true. There needs to be some more independent research on that. In your paper, you talk about PFAS in medical devices, which I was really surprised to actually see that PFAS is in catheters and stents and needles and used in the tubing and um, seals, etc., for kidney dialysis machines. And I think it's even in defibrillators. Yeah, and it's mostly the fluoropolymers that are used. In terms of the tubing, it's really soft, apparently. It's really comfortable. If it's inserted in your body, you don't want to have a sort of like stiff tubing, which is going to be uncomfortable when you move around. So there are some applications like that, which are also very difficult. I think some of these medical applications are particularly tricky to find uh, alternatives for. You have to also remember that PFAS is very diverse. And when you're talking about fluoropolymers, you're not talking about PFOS. We're talking about a solid, inert material. Fluoropolymers are a group of polymers within the class of PFAS. Ian is also a contributing author on a paper about fluoropolymers. The paper just published in October 2020 in the Environmental Science and Technology Journal is by Raina Lohman and others, titled Are Fluoropolymers Really of Low Concern for Human and Environmental Health and Separate from Other PFAS? The paper states that production of some fluoropolymers is intimately linked to the use and emissions of legacy and novel PFAS as polymer processing aids. There are serious concerns regarding the toxicity and adverse effects of fluorinated processing aids on humans and the environment. There are further concerns regarding the safe disposal of fluoropolymers and their associated products and articles at the end of their life cycle. And I'll put a link in the show notes to that paper as well. Now, there are problems with fluoropolymers, but it's not in their use phase. In their use phase, they're, they know, they're just solid, inert materials. The problems with fluoropolymers, which are things like PTFE or Teflon, which you use in your frying pan, but also lots of soft tubings and things. And of course, pretty much everyone knows about Teflon tape, which you use to stop your pipes dripping and so on. These things, they're solid materials. They're not like PFOS. But the problems with those materials is more in the manufacturing. You know, a lot of people have seen this film Dark Waters, and that's all about the manufacturing of fluoropolymers, which has been a huge problem. Dark Waters is a movie about the journey of US lawyer Rob Ballot, who discovered a well-known PFAS chemical, PIFOA, after being approached by a farmer, Wilbur Tennant, from Parksburg, West Virginia, who lived near a DuPont plant, whose cows kept mysteriously dying. Rob's book Exposure details his findings. He says it is one of the biggest environmental contamination stories in history. And the New York Times also did a story in 2016 on the story behind the Dark Waters movie called The Lawyer Who Became DuPont's Worst Nightmare. So when you use a fluoropolymer, you have to think that chemicals are being released during manufacturing. You have to think of the life cycle of the product. 
Exactly. And then, you know, we are moving, I don't know about Sweden, but in Australia and in other places of the world, of course, there's lots of talk in the waste industry of a circular economy and people trying to move towards a circular economy, which means a lot of these products, which maybe were stable, will end up breaking down in our landfills and go back into the environment. Yeah, I think the issue with PFAS in the circular economy is things like when you have recycled paper and you sort of you think, okay, this should be a PFAS-free paper, but it's not because it's, the recycled paper already has PFAS in it. Recycling rounds before you, you get rid of the PFAS that's in the papers and it's just going to stay there. Dr Anna Lenchrist is a senior toxicologist at Chemsec, a non-profit environmental organisation, a leading advocate of chemicals policy based on current scientific understanding. She was also present during the essential use webinar that Ian hosted and she talks about the circular economy when it comes to PFAS and waste. She said this, We are also wanting to go into a circular economy with highly increased rates of recycled materials and then such chemical groups as PFAS and very persistent chemicals are really important to get out of that system. Otherwise, it will just keep coming back and amplify. Yeah, exactly. So these products, while they might not cause a huge exposure pathway, you know, when they're being used, it's the manufacture of them and then it's in the waste phase, isn't it, that they become a challenge? Yeah, for some of them it's like that. Some of them are very problematic in use phase. You know, you have to be very substance specific with PFAS as a class. They're so different. They have different challenges with, with the different substances in the class, so you can't overgeneralize. Exactly. Have you been able to find out all the uses for PFAS? PFASs, I should say, not PFAS. Well, we have tried to. <laughs> I wouldn't go as far as saying we found all of them, but we tried to do it at. So it's a group of us that have done it. It's led by a, well, a German postdoc who's working in Switzerland uh, called Juliana Gugan. She's uh, identified over 200 different use categories and subcategories of PFAS, and many of them were unknown to us previously. They were known to someone, probably the industry, but not, not to most people. They used them for guitar strings and climbing ropes, all sorts of things. Oh, yes, tennis rackets as well. Yeah, they have a wide range of uses that we were not aware of, and uh, I don't think most people are. So, you know, that's going to be a challenge for the essential use concept. We're going to go through all of those uses and try and work out, you know, whether they're essential or not and how they can be phased out. And, Ian, who's going to do that? Who is going to be tasked with the job? We're probably going to do some of it. I mean, but you know, companies wonder whether it's the job of scientists to really go and look for the uses of chemicals. We're doing all this detective work, really, that the industry already know all the stuff, you know, but we end up having to do it. I really wonder if it's a sensible way for societies to use its resources. So the industry doesn't have to divulge a lot of the information. We have to kind of do the detective work and try and find it out. Exactly. But then even industry are going to be protective of their products because they make money from these products. The law says they don't have to say what's in there in a lot of cases because they want to protect the ingredients. You know, it's protected by a patent or something that they, they don't want someone else to copy it. So I understand that, but it does cause problems that we just do not know what's in stuff. And uh, we spend a lot of money trying to work it out afterwards, reverse engineer. For example, the AFFS. Jennifer Field has done all this work on trying to work out what's in AFFF. It's kind of crazy, really. The manufacturers should know what's in there. Are you saying that manufacturers do not need to declare PFAS in products? Well, they do in some, but they can be very vague. So if you look at the information that's provided in AFFF by manufacturers, it usually just says something like, one to three percent fluorinated surfactants. But actually, when you look at the um, you look at the composition, it's like forty different subclasses of fluorinated surfactants, which are all PFAS. So we don't have to declare that. We have to try and work that out afterwards. And then some of those substances could be problematic for human health, but we don't know. We have to try and work that out afterwards. You know, that's a worry. Do you think that there needs to be regulation that makes industry declare every PFAS chemical that's in their products? I don't think it's just PFAS specific. It's broader than that. I think it's chemicals as a whole. There needs to be more transparency about what chemicals use and uh, the emissions and so on. In Sweden, we do better because we have the Swedish Product Register, which means that we have a good list of all of the uses of chemicals and imports of chemicals into Sweden. And the authorities in Sweden work with scientists so that we can actually you know, use some of that information. 
But in most countries, that's not the case. You can't get hold of this information. And it basically means that we just cannot work out what's in products and how many chemicals are being emitted into the environment and then ultimately what we're exposed to and what wildlife are exposed to. So yeah, we need to work out the transparency. I don't know how it's going to be done. So someone who's an expert on law should look at this and try and work out how to increase the transparency. Exactly. Might be another job for Rob Ballot, but I think he's got his hands full. The man behind the Dark Waters movie. The thing that I was thinking there, though, you're having trouble finding the uses and what products have PFAS in them. But for the everyday consumer, we don't have a choice. We go and get our clothing or we buy our products and we don't know that PFAS is in them and we can't make a choice. You know, with BPA, we were able to say, oh, that's BPA free, I'll buy that one. But PFAS, it's not easy to do that for the consumer. No, it's not easy. I mean, it's not easy for me and I'm an expert. So if I go and buy something, I sometimes ask the people in the store, you know, and they don't often know. Some stores, the outdoor clothing stores, they're incredibly well educated in some parts in Sweden about PFAS. And there are labels now, so there are some retailers in Sweden that have really taken this on board and decided to try and phase out PFAS. So there are some clothing stores which, you know, really market themselves as being sort of PFAS free. I think the average consumer has no clue. So I understand it, but I think most people don't really know what, what that means when they see those labels. Well, even when you have a non-stick fry pan, people always are saying to me, because I've been studying this for two years, they'll say, what fry pan should I use? I say, I, I don't actually know, because if it says PFOA free, it's probably got an alternate PFAS chemical doing a similar thing. So do you have an answer for the uh, fry pan that people should buy? I think there are some like ceramic sort of non-stick pans that you can buy now, which is totally PFAS free. Actually, I have one. One thing I would say is if you've got a non-stick pan, don't throw it away. You know, like we talked about earlier, the waste disposal is problematic in itself. So it's better to use it as long as you can and then try and dispose of it in a responsible way rather than just think, oh, it's a PFAS. Because you're not going to get, as far as the sciences, you're not going to get exposed from the actual pan because they treat the pans to remove any residual PFOA from the pan. Or it used to be PFOA, but now it's other things like they use other chemicals now as the, um, you know, the processing eggs. But you're not going to get exposure from the pan itself. But the issue with the pan is really like the life cycle. It's the production and it's the disposal. You know, if you really want to be you know, environmentally friendly, then don't buy a, a PTFE non-stick pan because of the problems with the life cycle. And yet there are alternatives which are PFAS free. But you shouldn't be worried about the exposure. That would be my recommendation. Okay. So that paper that you were talking about with the 200 uses, could you please tell me again the name of that author because I didn't quite get it? Juliana Gluger, and my German isn't perfect. The paper is available. It's online, actually. So it's already available. The PFAS uses paper that we have been discussing is titled An Overview of the Uses of Per- and Polyfluoroalkyl Substances, PFAS, and it was accepted for publication by the Royal Society of Chemistry in September 2020 and just published at the end of October. I will put a link to that in the show notes. How easy has it been to find the uses of PFAS? Because it seems like it is a really, really difficult task. Yeah, I mean, like I said, we have help in Sweden from the people with the Swedish product register. So they have a list. So they really help provide us information of what PFAS are used then. And it's not just Sweden, but actually Nordic countries have these product registers. So Norway has a similar thing, Denmark. So that you can get information on what the chemicals are used in from that. But also we've done a lot of literature searches and uh, internet searches. And we're still finding new ones. I mean, we found <laughs> you could buy... Amazon, for example, you can buy all sorts of stuff on Amazon. It comes from all around the world. You know, can import it directly from China. For example, everyone has a cell phone or a mobile phone, and the screen on the mobile phone has a fingerprint-proof coating on it, which is actually PFAS. And you can buy some liquid PFAS from China, which you can put on your screens. When the fingerprint-proofing you know, it doesn't work anymore, you can put some new stuff on there, and you can buy the liquid directly from China. I don't know what's in it. You know, so there are things like that you discover. That's mind-blowing. One of the things that surprised me was I think piano keys have PFAS on them as well. Yeah, I'm not sure why. That might have been in that paper that you referenced, not your own paper. 
Yeah, but surface protection, I mean, they're used in all sorts of different surface protection applications. Talking about your case studies, uh, we won't be able to go into each of those case studies because that will take too long. But in your paper, you do outline which some of them we've talked about, personal care products, cosmetics, ski waxes, firefighting foams, food contact materials. Pharmaceuticals was an interesting one. I was quite interested to see and concerned to see that PFAS is in those blister packs that our medicines come in because it stops the humidity, which is obviously a good thing for the longer shelf life of a medicine. But do we really need PFAS in our blister packs for our medication? And is that an exposure route? I don't think it's an exposure route, but there are probably alternatives. I think from sustainability point of view, it's probably good to use those alternatives because these substances are persistent. So, yeah, I think they can be replaced. I wouldn't worry about it from an exposure point of view. You know, again, PFAS are diverse. The pharmaceuticals as well quite often just have one, well, I have to say a little bit of chemistry here, but they just have one carbon, which is fully fluorinated somewhere in their structure, which is probably not a problematic substance. It's not the same as the other PFAS that we study, like PFAS and other things. Okay. So when people look at the uses, you know that paper that you talked about where there was like 200 uses, when people start hearing it's in the tennis racket, it's in the piano keys, all of these things, do people need to panic, Ian? No, I don't think so. I think you you don't need to panic because, like I said, they're diverse. We're talking about a huge variety of substances and not all of them are going to be toxic. But I think what we should do is think about the sustainability issues, the fact that these substances result in very persistent chemicals in the environment. And the long-term consequences are a concern. But it's not an immediate panic that they're in all of these things. I wouldn't panic. And it's not our intention to make people panic. And I, I think there are people in probably in the manufacturing industry that think that, you know, that we are sort of sometimes causing panic by pointing these things out because the average person doesn't really understand, you know, the issue of the diversity of these substances. They just think PFAS are bad, all bad, and uh, they don't really understand that, the subtleties. Ian, I've spent a lot of time in Australia talking with people that are highly exposed in communities around defence bases. And so I'm thinking of these people when I say about the panic, because these are people who have higher levels of PFAS in their blood than the average population. And so I could imagine them hearing this and perhaps throwing out their tennis rackets and getting rid of all these items. But again, like you said, just because it's in there doesn't mean they're exposed. No, and we're talking about lots of different substances and they're not all problematic, say, for human health. But I can understand their concern and their panic and they want to throw these things out because they have reason to be concerned. Yes, right. Can you explain in your words what the core purpose of the paper was? Yeah, the core purpose was to guide the phase out PFAS because we already pointed out that we think the substances are problematic because of the high persistence, but also because we don't know much about those substances in the class. And it's going to take us decades to actually learn about all of the substances in the class because it takes just a huge amount of resources to, to measure these things like toxicity and so on. So we thought we should act quickly and precautionary and phase these substances out because they're so persistent. We think we should focus on the non-essential uses first. That these can be phased out fairly rapidly. And the, and the paper is kind of a guide to determining how you determine whether chemicals are non-essential, non whether it's substitutable, whether it is essential. It kind of fits in the framework of this chemical alternatives assessment, which I, I talked about earlier, which is a growing field for providing a framework for how to phase out chemicals of concern. I want to go to your webinar before we run out of time. You recently moderated a webinar on the essential use concept. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the webinar? We set up a webinar to discuss this topic because we think this topic, like we discussed earlier, there's a lot of attention around it and people are interested in it and understanding it and how it can be used. So we've got together a, a group of people, like multi-stakeholders. They have different points of view. So we have someone from industry, someone from a, an NGO, a chemical regulator, and an academic. So we think they would have like really diverse views on, on the subject. At the webinar, we had an introductory presentation so that everyone understood the concept. 
And then uh, I asked some questions to these different people, experts that we had introduced from different sectors. And we had a kind of lively discussion where there were quite different views expressed by the panel that we'd invited. I think there was a consensus in that the essential use concept was interesting, but I think there was different ideas about how it should be applied. Whereas, you know, some people think that it should be applied to all PFAS because all PFAS are problematic. I think the industry probably would think, no, not all PFAS are problematic. We should probably just apply it to a limited set of PFAS. And there was also, you know, I think probably from the industry side of things, it's probably more interesting in trying to define the essential uses to protect those essential uses. Yes. And from the regulatory side, it's more to focus on the non-essential uses and phase them out as quickly as possible. So there are different yeah, perspectives, depending on this, who you asked in that panel discussion. But I find it very interesting. Was there anything about the webinar discussion on the topic that surprised you or changed your own point of view? Not really, because I, I think I've talked to these people quite a lot anyway beforehand. We have quite a few meetings beforehand, so I kind of knew what was coming. I also know some of the individuals from collaborations, not all of them. I knew the industry person because you know, we have collaborated over the years on various things. I tried to ask the industry questions to try and find out things and they sometimes tell me so it's quite good to have contact with them you had an industry scientist what was his name yeah, steve Krasanowski. from beach edge consulting yeah he used to work for dupont which is now chemos for many years oh chemos yeah he worked for chemos for many years and before that dupont when he was dupont for about 30 years or so he's he really understands the whole you know manufacturing business he's a consultant now I've got his bio here. He's a consultant to the fluorotechnology chemical industry. I found the webinar very interesting. And if I've got it right, he felt that the essential use concept needed more defining and discussion and agreement on how it should look. Have I understood correctly? Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. It needs more thoughts regarding the criteria and how it should be applied, who should apply it and so on. It needs a lot more thought. We are doing more work on it, and we are trying to think about the criteria and how it's going to be applied, who's going to apply it, and so on. Dr. Stephen Kawanarski is a principal at Beach Edge Consulting and a representative for the Alliance for Telemachemistry Stewardship and Performance Fluoropolymer Partnership. Stephen has worked in the fluorochemistry industry for over 30 years. I did invite him to have a chat for the next episode of Talking PFAS, but due to time constraints, he was unable to do so. But I hope to get him on the podcast in the future. During the webinar, Dr. Stephen Kalinowski said, I would ask us to pull back and really look at what should be the definition, how it is defined, what criteria we should use, and what guiding principles so that it is applied evenly. And in regards to the essentiality concept proposed by Ian and colleagues in his paper, Dr Kowanowski said, if emission controls are put in place, they're shown to be effective, they're monitored effectively, then I'm not sure that this particular concept is needed. But I also think that industry are particularly worried about the fact that we want to sort of focus on the whole class of PFAS because they don't think that PFAS are all problematic and they particularly are interested in protecting the fluoropolymer because that's the, the big revenue for them. So things like PTFE, they really want to protect that, those products because that's where they make the most money. PTFE? PTFE, yeah, Teflon. Teflon. Yeah, Teflon. Teflon is the chemo's brand name, right? But it's PTFE. PTFE. Okay. And I just got something from his website here that talks about that the fluorotechnology industry was a $19.7 billion business in 2013. It was going up. It's expanding rapidly. It's despite all of the focus. <laughs> yeah. And also in 2013, it says here that more than $1.2 trillion of global manufacturing output included fluorotechnology. So, you know, this is a big business, isn't it? It's a huge business. And when you look at the uses, you realise how widely they use. It's amazing. I mean, it's, it is a big business and they want to protect that business, of course. And uh, they're making a lot of money out of it. A lot of people have jobs, I guess, associated with that business. Yeah. But as Stephen pointed out, the fluorotechnology industry actually believe that what they are making is 
critical for societal needs, including the fight against the pandemic, which we talked about. He says many of their products are critical to the functioning of society and an important tool in a more sustainable world. What do you think of that statement, though? I don't know about the the more sustainable world. I would question that. But whether they are um, essential for society, I think there probably are some uses which are essential for society, at least now. In the paper we're discussing today by Ian and colleagues, it says some specific uses of PFASs would be considered essential because they provide for vital functions and are currently without established alternatives. However, this essentiality should not be considered as permanent, rather constant efforts are needed to search for alternatives. They have a wide number of uses and you know we haven't been looking at alternatives because they work very well but there are several examples where once you started to focus on them like AFFF there was a lot of innovation very quickly and alternatives came up that worked pretty well. But when we look at AFFF it was sprayed out into the environment so it was a high level exposure product. If you lived near where it was used or you actually used it it's getting into the air, the groundwater, the soil. It's a tricky one because not all of the products are the same. They don't have the exposure route. They are used in very different ways like what we discussed earlier. The PTFE, the Teflon, there's not really a problem in the use phase but you don't have to see the from dark waters to understand all the exposure that occurred during the production phase. During the production, yeah. It's production and the waste phase that seem to be the areas of most concern, unless you are talking about something like the firefighting foam. Yeah, the firefighting foams, but I guess there are other open applications of PFAS which are also concerned. One of the things that surprised me is sun cream. Like sunscreen is so important to protect us from cancer. Mm. But then, I mean, this is something we're lathering on our children and ourselves. So it probably stays on there longer because it's like more sort of water repellent or something. So it's the pros and cons, you know, and also we don't know much about dermal exposure. So you may not have any concern because it's not getting through your skin and may just stay on the surface. So there's always a concern when you're putting something directly onto your skin. And, you know, you could spend 10 years doing research about it and trying to work out whether it goes through or not. Or you could just say, let's find something else. So, and I think probably let's find something else that works and uh, we can substitute quite quickly. And I think that's probably an example of a non-essential use. Yes. We talked about the fluorochemistry industry a little bit before. Are you getting much opposition from them in regards to your paper? The essential use? No, not the essential use, because I think that they can see some ways in which they could use the concept, as I say, for um, protecting their products by saying that they are essential. They've always been saying that they are essential to society. I think there's a bit of a twisting of the concept where they, they don't talk about essential uses, they start to talk about essential chemicals. And uh, then they try and say that the actual chemistry is essential, which is twisting the concept. When we're talking about the uses. We should apply the concept to each use case. Whereas they want to say, you know, the chemistry is essential, we need it in society. Well, I'm looking at their list, okay? It's a little bit different to your list, Ian, in your paper. You know, just a couple of things to highlight for the listeners. Aerospace, semiconductors, building and construction, alternate energy like lithium batteries, automotive, electronics, uh, healthcare, oil and gas. So when you look at these categories, it's quite easy for people to say, well, that must be essential then. Yeah, solar panels, which is also one where you can sort of say, you know, that's great for the environment. Again, it's a fluoropolymer, which is like an inert substance. So why is it of concern? But you have to look at the life cycle. And if they can make those fluoropolymers in a way which they do not release things during manufacture and disposal, then maybe it's okay to use them. At the moment, it's not good the way things are going around the manufacturing side. So they need to do more. Yeah, because we're talking about a group of chemicals that are extremely persistent. They're diverse. You know, some are mobile in water, some are mobile in air, and some are not mobile. They, they do everything. <laughs> so complex. So is there anything about your paper that you feel we didn't talk about in this discussion that we should have? I think we covered most of it, actually. Maybe not in a linear way, but I think we covered most of the topics which I have sort of listed down I wanted to talk about. Right. I think it's a start. It's a starting point. The paper was not supposed to be like a finished product. 
it's inspired a lot of people to do more work. So I know there are lots of people around the world already writing papers about how to sort of develop the concept further, you know, talking about how the scope should be defined. I think if people are interested in applying it to more than just PFAS. You've got, I've seen a paper on how it could be applied to microplastics, the, the concept. So there's a lot of interest in the concept, and I think it's going to be developed further. There's lots of work needs to be done on the tightening the criteria and defining them better. We probably need to get legal help, probably with some of these criteria, if it's going to be put into legislation at some point in the future. So actually, how we implement this practically also requires a lot more thought. This work is ongoing, but it's just starting. But I'm really pleased that this has inspired so many people to think about these issues. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of it in the next months and years. Yeah, it's not going to be a quick process, though, is it, Ian? No, that's a frustrating thing sometimes with chemical regulation. and It takes so long, and I've been working on these substances for 20 years, and I would like to see precautionary action, but it's not going to be like that because chemical regulation is a frustratingly slow process. So you know, we have got PFOS on the Stockholm Convention in 2009, yeah, um, and, uh, you know, PFOA is now there. Um, but, you know, we're just talking about a couple of substances and that we've got international agreement on. So it does take a long time to regulate and there'll be lots of discussion back and forth between the different uh, stakeholders that are involved. And we have to remember, if you take a blood from anybody around the world, you're likely to find quite a few PFAS chemicals in their blood. That's the truth, isn't it? You will find some. There's also a large unknown fraction that in human blood. When we do total fluorine analysis, we see that there's some fraction that we don't know what it is. That's always a concern. In people's blood? Yeah, in people's blood, but also not just in people's blood, but in, in wildlife and in the environment. In fact, the fraction in the environment is much larger that we don't understand. Also, what's a concern, Ian, is the short-chain PFAS chemicals that are replacing a lot of the long-chain ones um, from people that I've spoken with and experts. You have these chemicals that may not be detectable in the blood of the general population, but it doesn't mean that they haven't been in people's bodies and come out again. And um, people are concerned about the mix of PFAS chemicals that could be in people's bodies. Is that something that we should be concerned about? Yeah, I think the mixture, I mean, regarding the replacement, the, the shorter chain chemicals are eliminated much more rapidly from your body than the legacy substances. So that is an improvement, I have to admit. But the problem is that they're accumulating in the environment. The levels in the environment go up and up and up, so the exposure will gradually go up and up and up. And so in the long, long term, we have to do something about that. We can't emit something into the environment which will never degrade. We go back to that issue again. But yeah, it was an improvement, but it really, you know, it's not the end. We have to do better than just changing from the long chains to the short chains. Yeah. So who's going to drive these changes? I mean, we did touch on it earlier, but you're going to do some work. But is there agencies that are working to try to take action here? Are we talking about NGOs helping? Who have you got helping? This is my view on the subject is, is as follows. Yeah, there are agencies working on this. And in the um, European Union, there's five countries clubbed together and they're trying to make a, a very broad restriction on PFAS use in society. So these are the more progressive countries in the European Union. So Sweden, um, Norway, Denmark, Germany and the Netherlands. They've come together to try and make a broad restriction proposal. And in that, they want to focus on phasing out the non-essential uses. But I think it's going to take time. And it might not even fly this. It might get stopped because, as I said, regulation is a frustratingly slow process. And there's other stakeholders involved who will resist it, who will stop it happening. And other countries in the European Union who may resist it and stop it happening. And then we've got the fluorochemistry industry who also profit from this. And then you've got, like I said before, people that are highly exposed that have just suffered terribly from PFAS contaminating their property, their land, their children. And they would say, get rid of all of them, just ban the lot. Yeah, the main drivers for the phase out these substances is not the regulators, it's the consumers, it's the everyday person, it's the, the NGOs and the actual industry different sectors of industry but there are some sectors of industry retailers that really do not want these substances in their products these are the real drivers of change and they are the ones who are things like phasing out PFAS from cosmetics phasing out PFAS from outdoor clothing so that these things are happening there's lots of positive messages here that 
PFAS is, you know, they are being phased out for many, many different uses already. But it's not the regulators causing this change. You know, it's the consumers, the retailers, the NGOs. All right. It's a fascinating discussion. And at least your paper is very clear and easy for anyone to understand, even if they don't have a huge background knowledge of PFAS. It's quite an easy read. Probably the message is simple. So I think that's one of the reasons why it has been so impactful. You are a little bit surprised sometimes as a scientist. Why do people find this so exciting? But it was quite simple. But that is really the beauty of it, that it is simple. Is there anything else that you want to add before we go, Ian? No, um, not really. I think we covered a wide range of topics and uh, it was an interesting discussion. So I, I don't really have more to add. I mean, I, I could talk about PFAS for hours because I'm, you know, obviously working on them for a long time and I'm fascinated by them. But uh, I'll take that another day. During our interview, I forgot to ask Ian what he was working on next when it came to PFAS. So post-interview... I asked him some questions via email and he responded with his own recording. What's next for you and PFAS, Ian? Well, we've just started a new large European Union funded project focusing on PFAS called Purpose 3. We'll be training 15 PhDs in a wide range of aspects of PFAS science, including understanding exposure and toxicology of PFAS and solutions to remove PFAS from the environment. So you can expect lots more PFAS research from me and my collaborators in the coming years. The project started on 1st of January this year, and we've been up to now recruiting the PhD students. They're now nearly all recruited. We had a big online kickoff meeting recently in early October. And I should also say it's a collaboration between 13 different organisations in Europe from six different countries and nine universities and four independent research centres. We also have multiple stakeholders actively involved in the project. And the project will continue until the end of 2023, which is four years. Have you got information on the Perforce 3 project? And I will put a link in the show notes. Yes, I'll provide you with some more information on the project and a link to our website. Uh, We're also on Twitter. Thanks again for talking with us on Talking PFAS podcast. Thank you. Have a nice evening. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget, you can follow Talking PFAS on Twitter. I tweet nationally and globally about PFAS. So the Twitter handle is Talking PFAS. And you can also email me at talkingpfas.com at gmail.com and remember all information in today's episode is copyright please share but contact me for reuse permissions thank you very much see you next time